You know why I'm so passionate about Music to Code By? Because it works. I'm still getting a steady stream of success stories from developers just like you, who sail effortlessly through hours of coding. There's only one problem. They can't get enough. Well, not only are we up to track 13, but you can download them all in one shot for a new low price. The collection was 54 bucks just a little while ago, still only a little more than four bucks a track, but now you can get all 13 for only 39 bucks. That's only three bucks a track. Yeah, that's more like it. 325 minutes of pure bliss. Go get it now at collection.musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1341, with guests Matthew Padwasaki and Eric Roselle. Recorded Friday, August 19th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. We're here for another hour of happiness and goodness, and uh, we're happy and peppy and bursting with love. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at least you are. <laughs> I'm filled with dark cynicism and concerns. <laughs> you, you know, you've been you spent uh, a week in the dark Arctic, with uh, seeing no, nothing no, but light gray. all the time, dude. What's that? It's summertime there. The sun never goes down; it just goes around in a circle. Yeah, I know, but it's gray as far as the eye can see, right? Oh, well, ice. We had some yeah. bright, sunny, you know, completely clear days as well. But mm. there, there's crazy, you know, where we, when we got up into the pack ice, you know, 80 degrees north, the compass is actually pointing west when it's pointing north because you're now above <laughs> the magnetic north pole. That's weird. So, yeah, it was, I? it was nutty. Wow. And and all those those maps, all of the Mercator projections, they're worthless up there. Right. You need a different map, but it just makes you realize that things are not the same shape you think. We were not that far from Alaska, from yeah. Russia. You know, it's it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. it was it was a lot of fun, and and I'm a different person because of it, and not just my haircut. So you're saying that you're cranky for other reasons. It has oh, no- you know, we're, I'm in the <laughs> I'm in the office that's never finished, right? Yeah, in the yeah. basement that's of endless exercise. So, <laughs> all right, yeah. Well, Although I'm the Lumen Cache lighting, I love it, love it, love it, love it. All right. Well, I have another gadget to talk about today that came in from one Torsten Ahorn. So let's roll the music, and I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? It's called Ubico. Ubico? Y-U-B-I-C-O dot com. And what it is, it's essentially the USB password encryption device that I've been asking for for a long time. Nice. Yeah. You know, actually, the YubiKey we've mentioned on Run As Radio talking about identity and security. There you go. So Have this you is- seen the Nano? Yeah. The YubiKey Nano, that's like identity you can fit up your nose. Exactly. Well, they have a couple of different ones, and uh, the standard YubiKey is uh, 40 bucks, And essentially, it works with um, 
all of these different password managers like LastPass and all of that, but also a lot of companies like Google, Facebook, Salesforce, GitHub, Dropbox, they're all including support for it. And of course, it comes with an API so that you can use it yourself uh, on your own sites. And the whole idea now is that this key becomes your second factor authentication. Right. Yeah. So instead of having to answer a text with a code or whatever, you simply plug this thing in, you know, go to Gmail and it automatically logs you in. This is awesome. Yeah. You know, we're, I feel like, cause we're, we're on under the gun for all these security problems all this time. And yep. this is like, these are pieces that make you feel like maybe we have a chance. I absolutely think so. So I bought one. It's coming in the mail. And if I like it, my wife's getting one. And if she likes it, I'm handing them out for Christmas presents. Sure. Yeah. It's like yep. the, this and last pass together. Yeah. You know, that's, that would be magic. You, you be key in last pass. So you got all your passwords in a secure place that, yeah, that'll handle all your logins for you, but you can only access it if you have the YubiKey as well. Well, it certainly does work with LastPass, so that's uh, one of the scenarios they paint. Love it, love it, love it, buddy. Nice one. You got it. Who's talking to us, my friend? Grabbed a comment off of show 1233, the one we did with Tamir Drescher back in December of 2015. We were talking about practical reactive extensions. Mm. So he was talking, this was one of the stops on the, remember we did that Azure tour and we were in Tel Aviv? Yeah. Tamir was one of the guys we talked to there and he was talking about the software he was building using RX. Yep. So, and, and really that, what I really enjoyed about his conversation was this, I took an existing app and started adding reactive to it. It wasn't yeah. sort of an all or nothing proposition. Right. Uh, and, uh, got this comment from a few months ago from Diego Ayastrubni. And that's a heck of a last name. So yeah. you do not need to buy a vowel. But uh, hopefully I pronounced it correctly. But I love this comment because it sort of speaks to where we are in the .NET community these days, where Diego says, as a Linux user and programmer, I always feel funny listening to the show. However, one, Tamir, you suck. Oh, no. You should move out from the dark side. Linux is waiting for you. Huh. Now, th this is a good statement, right? Like, right away, you're like... Hey, I know you're a .NET dev, but even the Linux guys want you. I remember when Mark Miller tried to entice me to come to Delphi from Visual Basic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, if you really want to be productive, you should listen to Infected Mushrooms. 60 beats per minute is for suckers. Real men and women code and write books using 140 beats per minute. Uh, only if you're on acid. <laughs> well, we are talking about the band Infected Mushrooms. I suppose you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Three, thanks for the podcast. The idea of variables having a set of values instead of just a single one is life-changing. I get the reactive APIs now. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm. Four, Carl and Richard, what the heck? You started bringing programmers instead of musicians to this show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. And P.S., just to clear things up about the Tamir you suck, Tamir and I were in the same class in college, which I thought was hilarious. Oh, okay. So there you go. Hey, so Diego, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, fun to have a little insider conversation. Uh, Tamir is an amazing guy. We really enjoyed talking to him. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. 
And follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We stick him up our nose. Nice. And that brings us to our guest. Not that our guests have anything to do with things stuck up your nose. But uh, let's talk to Matthew Podwasaki. We've talked to him before on the show. He's a software engineer at Microsoft based in Washington, D.C. He's also a TC39 member. I'm sure he'll tell us what that is. A contributor to the Reactive Extensions and React Native Windows projects. Uh, also with us today is Eric Rosell. He's a software engineer at Microsoft based in Cambridge, Matt, our fair city, interested in all things reactive programming. Eric is a project lead for React Native Windows and an RX.NET contributor. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. React Native yeah, thanks for having us. Windows. Yeah, exactly. What are you talking I'm about? Well, it's, I think it's even funnier just the, the comments that you read once again about RX. And sure enough, you have two RX contributors, uh, basically on, <laughs> on that uh, same call that, uh, you know, you're talking about that. Yeah. None of these things are by accident, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, uh, yeah. So yes, React Native, uh, Windows, uh, that, that is such a thing. So, uh, okay. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, well, tell us about it. Sure. Uh, so React Native, uh, obviously is, well, let's, let me go back. So React, uh, definitely changed the way we thought about, uh, web programming and developer experience on the web. And so, uh, some people at Facebook decided, Hey, why not take some of these ideas with our, uh, uh, with React in terms of the virtual DOM diffing and so forth. Uh, and bring that to, uh, to, to the native platforms such as iOS and Android. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, you know, since they had a lot of, uh, devs working on iOS and Android, uh, there was an opportunity, uh, at Microsoft for us to, uh, to work directly with, uh, with Facebook, uh, to bring it directly to the, uh, the universal Windows platform so that, uh, no matter which uh, kind of device you were using, whether it was going to be, you know, Windows or Windows Mobile, HoloLens or Xbox, you can go ahead and uh, and run uh, the same application uh, pretty much out of the box. Yeah, uh, that's that was our goal to uh, so that uh, you get a great developer experience where you can uh, uh, create scaffolding uh, for your particular application. You can uh, you can write a .windows file, which allows you to specialize for any particular Windows-like behavior that you want, uh, and it just works. We we have a capability where you can say React uh, React Native uh, or yeah React Native uh, uh, Windows, which will create the the scaffolding, and then run uh, run Windows. Uh, which will actually uh, take your app and start it uh, on uh, the local uh, uh, on the local machine. So it's really kind of a cool thing where um, uh, you have the ability to to be productive uh, using uh, React technologies all on the Windows platform. Awesome! Long time coming, huh? Yeah, it was. It's. Uh, I mean, it started off as a little hackathon project uh, that we had internally to the team, and then uh, we were just like, you know what? This this is really kind of a a big thing. Let's let's make sure that the the rest of the community can really uh, use it, enjoy it, and and build upon it. Because quite honestly, you have a lot of React Native developers out there that are building great experiences on iOS and Android. 
and Windows is sometimes, uh, you know, seen as a second citizen, as it were. Right. So we definitely wanted to, to, to change that, uh, that perception that they get an awesome developer experience, uh, especially with all the tooling that uh, Microsoft is creating with uh, the stuff for uh, the React Native tools for Visual Studio Code, Code Push, and all the other things that we're doing at Microsoft. All right. So if you're a native Windows developer and you've been listening to .NET Rocks and merely tolerating all the webby stuff that we've done in the last 10 years, um, maybe you don't know about reactive extensions or maybe you've just heard about them and maybe you certainly might not know about React. Let's uh, tell those people what new kind of goodness they can utilize with React Native for Windows. Yeah, uh, so the idea here is basically that uh, it, uh, just like with uh, with building uh, apps for React uh, for the web, uh, you can use basically those same set of skills to build uh, native applications. Uh, so instead of using, say, divs and spans in your, your JSX, you're actually using native controls. Well, remember, we're native... talking to Windows people here, so we can't really uh, use those analogies. Well, okay, fair enough. Okay, so... Do you want a XAML-like experience in uh, uh, in JavaScript? That's a that's a question I'll just throw out there. Mm. And if the answer is yes, then we can certainly help you because uh, all you're doing at the uh, at the end of the day when you're using uh, React Native for uh, for Windows is that you have a translation layer between the JavaScript that you'll be writing and the uh, and the XAML controls behind the scenes. Hmm. So are you saying then that you can, as a WPF developer, write JavaScript? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what we provide are shims uh, t- uh, for uh, for particular controls, whether it's uh, uh, foot view, whether it's text input, and so forth, uh, that it's basically very much analogous to XAML in terms of you can use you know these kinds of stack panels and what whatever other native controls that React Native has, and creating a very rich experience. So you're instead of having you know your main page.cs and then your your front end XAML, it's all kind of intermixed in this one file where you can have uh, the JSX, which is the uh, uh, the visual representation of your particular view. Then you have your other aspects, such as your uh, your loading logic, unloading logic, and any other JavaScript that you happen to write. Uh, but all of that gets translated uh, down to uh, down directly to uh, uh, to XAML, and then uh, the WinRT runs it from there. So uh, at the end of the day, yes, you are writing uh, XAML controls all in JavaScript. Wow. You know, I'm thinking, is this something a XAML developer used to see Sharp would be happy with to write JavaScript in, or a JavaScript developer trying to figure out how to get to native Windows? Uh, I would certainly say the latter. I mean, especially when you're dealing with uh, with native developers who are used to React and right. you know who are new to uh, new to Windows or want to bring their their app to Windows. Uh, right. They would certainly uh, they would certainly love that the minimal to no learning curve uh, in terms of being able to be productive, uh, knowing what they know about using views and text and, uh, and all of the particular uh, tab items and, and, and so forth. 
So, uh, but it but it also benefits the Windows developer quite a bit because they understand that this markup in the JSX is very much analogous exactly to what the kind of declarative markup that they're using in, in directly in XAML. So at the first build, you know, we where WinJS was announced, I remember thinking, you know, that that's a little strange. Do they really think that they're going to get these JavaScript developers to write Windows apps? And the answer was pretty much not a whole lot of people did that. And I don't know what the status of WinJS is now, but I, I guess, you know, to address the people that know what WinJS is and mm -hmm. uh, understand that whole paradigm, how would you compare the two? Uh, well, WinJS obviously builds upon the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, model of, of dealing with uh, with chakra dealing with uh, web views and and so forth where you're dealing kind of with divs and all of that uh, which kind of go down to data have all this data binding stuff uh, but really you're dealing with web technologies at the end of the day uh, with react native uh, what you're doing is is you're dealing with a, a different paradigm where all of the JavaScript that you're writing is normal, uh, normal everyday run-of-the-mill JavaScript, mm. but the markup that you're using is very much analogous to XAML. So instead of having to know divs, spans, and and all of the other things that you are using in your JavaScript, uh, you can now use things that are more declarative, as it were, because WinJS had had some weird stuff where you basically had to give your divs certain classes in order to say turn it into a uh, turn it into a list view or turn it into a scroll view any number of those things whereas here uh, you have very explicit controls. Okay. Yeah. And you also get the benefit of the React uh, React and React Native community, obviously, with our which are both tremendously huge when you look at when you realize that react and react native are one of the biggest starred projects and most followed projects on on github with you know well over 700 to 800 committers as well mm. yeah i'd just like to add that um from a from sort of a selling perspective to people who are used to doing or already building their windows apps directly in xaml or in winjs um when you're building when you're building your apps with React Native, uh, you're getting this sort of code sharing economics to iOS and Android and any of the other um, platforms that are uh, popping up in this horizontal ecosystem. So at this point, uh, there's people working on React Native uh, Ubuntu, React Native uh, Apple TV, React Native Mac OS, things like that. So it's this it's this opportunity for you to sort of compose little pieces or components of views that you can share across many different platforms that you wouldn't be able to get out of just using purely WinJS. With WinJS, you can get a lot of business logic sharing and things like that from your other JavaScript applications. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's just definitely a great... Yeah, yeah it seems like a no-brainer then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Facebook came out with uh, React Native for iOS and Android, and then, uh, sure enough, Eric was uh, was one to go to F8, and he can tell you a little bit about uh, uh, what we did there. Yeah, tell us about F8. Like, I'd, I'd like to hear that story. What's F8? Yeah, so F8 is the, the developer conference that Facebook has every year. They've had it for the past, I don't know, eight to ten years. I don't know. It's been a while. I think since, like, 2006 or something. Um, but it when we... 
uh, first started building React Native for Windows, we reached out almost immediately to people in the in the community, and they were super excited about it because you know that's kind of been the dream when they built this. When they first built the platform, it was just for iOS, and then shortly after, I think a year after they announced React Native, they added React Native Android. Um, and right around, you know, only a couple minutes, uh, a couple months later after the React Android announcement, we started thinking about, hey, we, you know, we can also do this for Windows as well. Um, so yeah, when we, when we initially reached out, we, they said, yeah, we'd be, we'd be happy to meet up with you. Um, so we, we attended the, the React JS conference in, um, in February met up with the team at their uh, Mountain View campus and had a really great discussion. And then somebody kind of just brought up this idea that like, hey, we're building, we're gonna, we're planning on open sourcing this app for uh, the F8 developer conference is supposed to be this, this really awesome um, uh, resource for the React Native developer community. And um, they said, if you guys could even get a subset of those views running, you know, by the time we get to F8, I think that that could tell a really great story about React Native and, and its horizontal platform approach. So we were like, yeah, sure, we can we can certainly take that on. We got early access to their open source repository. And uh, between Matt and myself and some other members of our team, we were able to get the uh, F8 developer conference app that they had open source that like at the day of the conference install or available on the on the Windows Store for Windows Phone users at the conference as well. So it was like a really cool story of seeing uh, seeing the reality of of the cross-platform approach and, and the code sharing economics and things like that. Yeah, and not only did we show it running on the, on the, the, uh, the Windows mobile device, but we also had it running on the Xbox uh, and, uh, and, and so forth. And they also mentioned uh, they are also mentioning that uh, they were bringing it to Tizen as well. So you know, so really huge kind of announcements in terms of how bringing uh, React Native to a bunch of different platforms mm. really opens it opens up the world for you. Wow! So does the typical scenario look like an existing React Native app built for iOS, Android, and now with relatively little changes, you can compile it, run it natively on Windows Phone and Windows? Correct. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that is fairly accurate. We've been kind of building our developer experience around, you know, making that a, making that very easy for people who already have their iOS and Android apps. But we've right. actually got a lot of people who are interested in just building their desktop apps on React Native, and they don't even have plans necessarily to build React Native apps for iOS and Android. Uh, they just think it's a cool uh, development paradigm and and want to use it uh, for their team structure. So, I mean, actually, the logical one would be I want to work in the desktop form factor. I don't want to cram this app down to mobile, and I still want cross-platform capabilities. So, yep. uh, is there somewhere to go besides the Windows desktop? Like, will it go on to OS X? Uh, they are actually working on a, a, a Mac port as well. Uh, so, nice. not only do you have iOS, but there's also a Mac port. There's the Ubuntu uh, port that they're actually using QT4 uh, to so that you could run... Uh, apps that way, which would be kind of funny because on the Windows subsystem for Linux, then you could run a React Native app on Ubuntu on Windows. Just to blow your mind there. And, and just to clarify, they being the uh, the people in the React Native community, uh, yes. there's you know there's a lot of different groups that are that yep. are working on all these different platforms. So yep. the nature exactly. of open source, right? Lots of people taking this on in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Hmm. Wow, seems fascinating to me. 
it's a it's a whole world of stuff that I know nothing about. So I'm just interested in uh, learning the basics myself. But I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there who are already React developers that are really really stoked about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was our desire to make it uh, a work on Windows, but b also be a great developer experience where. You know, you don't even need Visual Studio necessarily to, you know, to hit that compile button, but you can, you know, for those command line buffs, you also have the, uh, the capability of, of building something awesome by just typing in, you know, uh, React Native, uh, run Windows. And then suddenly, uh, it takes your app, compiles it, uh, deploys it to your local machine and runs it. Wow. So. And what flavor of Windows app is it? In other uh, words. It is. Uh, it's a, a UWP app, so you can deploy it uh, any which uh, to any form factor you wish. Great, fantastic. I notice here that the you I mean we're coding everything in JavaScript. I presume React Native on iOS and Android are using the Google V8 engine, and the Windows implementation is the Chakra engine. That's the IE engine, right? Uh, yes, we are using the uh, the Edge engine uh, for iOS. It's using uh, JavaScript Core. Uh, which uh, which is the uh, the engine behind Safari? Uh, so each of them have basically their own backend system, as it were. And that's cool because you think about how crazy that is that we're having a common language, literally with different runtimes, and expecting it to work across them. Three of them. When has that ever been done before? I can't think <laughs> of any time. When has that ever worked? Yeah, I was actually I was really surprised how seamless it was to get. Uh, to get the React Native JavaScript library running on Chakra, I I don't think we actually had to do any changes whatsoever to the library. Wow. Uh, mm. And I don't know if that. I mean, I think that's props to to two people, right? Like that that's props to the the Chakra team for doing such an amazing job on the J- JavaScript runtime, and also props to the uh, uh, React Native community for putting together you know a great library that is sort of easily easily transported and doesn't depend on any sort of JavaScript core specifics exactly yeah making sure that they're using you know standards compliant javascript therefore uh, it's easily transportable from runtime to runtime yeah well and this is what i'm trying to go is are you meaning to tell me there's a standard so well implemented that it's actually standard (laughs) go figure well which is why yes i'm i'm a um, uh, part of the tc39 which is the javascript uh uh, ECMAScript, rather, uh, standardization committee. Ah, uh, great. Uh, and, uh, and yes, that is the, very much the point is that, uh, you know, that Edge and, uh, V8 and JavaScript Core and, uh, SpiderMonkey are all very much showing off that, uh, that they are very close on ES2015, you know, compatibility, meaning that they've implemented the spec, uh, you know, within, uh, using the, the proper tests to, to ensure compatibility. So for us to make sure that, uh, you know, what React Native was doing in terms of the JavaScript and the JavaScript that they were using was compliant with that, it's a no-brainer. It should just work. Mm. That's a giant should, Matt. Giant. <laughs> and, you know, you could correlate that with, and in the past, has not. Fair enough. I mean, there are, yes, there are uh, specific uh, implementation details, you know, per engine, uh, especially if you're, you know, at the very bleeding edge when uh, when uh, standards are starting to emerge, uh, especially behind flags and so forth. But uh, that's why a lot of people use things like Babel uh, and other things to basically translate those 
bleeding edge features down to something that all browsers understand. Yeah. You know, for a long time, it seemed like the the way that new features got added to JavaScript is that one of the engine teams used their browser to do an implementation and put it into the wild to see if people would use it and use that as a justification to be part of the standard. Am I wrong? Uh, that was certainly past behavior of, of doing that. They're more along the lines of can we build can we build apps with it? Can we be productive with it, and so forth. And there are some times when they find out you know that's the negative. For example, with Object Observe, that they were trying to add I notify property changed like behavior to uh, to JavaScript objects, yeah, so that you could get two way data binding. Uh, but they found. Um, that it was really not performant at all and that people had kind of moved on from that paradigm anyways where they were more interested in the uh, the unidirectional data binding that react gives you for example mhm yeah it's interesting how you build the thing that people were asking for last year and they don't want it this year yeah and so you know you're trying to build something that's future proof and then you start with the minimum approach and then uh, and then start building upon it you know, you could say the same of, you know, JavaScript promises, very, you know, bare bones implementation for ES uh, 2015 and so forth. But going forward, you know, adding things like finally adding uh, uh, promise cancellation, all of that comes afterwards. Nice. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to announce our new social media site, Faceplant. Hmm. It's Facebook for your houseplants. <laughs> now your babies can post their selfies, brag about their water intake, their need to go hours without photosynthesis, and post tips about how to keep the cats from peeing on them. <laughs> being chewed on. And yeah. Faceplant.com. Nice. I don't even know if that's a real site, so if it's something vulgar, it wasn't me. Uh, actually, it's time to give away a Sync Fusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, with over 650 controls, Sync Fusion's Essential Studio is the most comprehensive suite of components available for .NET and JavaScript with world-class diagrams, maps, and charts. Reduce your development time, save some money, and get the best support in the industry. These are just a few of the reasons over 800,000 people make Sync Fusion a part of their daily dev process. And now individual developers and small teams can get access to every single control in Sync Fusion's library for free. The community license also gives you access to Sync Fusion's growing library of enterprise applications like dashboard platform and big data platform that can help make sense of complex data. Support and updates are included too. It's a $10,000 value for free. Find out more and get started today at syncfusion.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Zach Perry. Congratulations. Yeah. It's all clap for you, sir. Somebody toward the end of the alphabet, Zach Perry. There you go. Goes to show you my randomization method works. And uh, Zach just won the Sync Fusion Essential Studio. Big pile awesome from them. And if you don't know what we just did here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
but you have to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, guys. Eric, we'll start with you. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? I would definitely buy probably a HoloLens, just because I think those things are awesome. Right? Well done. Well done. Yep. Love they me some awfully HoloLens. cool. You got a little money left over. With a little bit of money left over? Probably a drone, I think. Maybe yeah. so that I can, you know. Fly the drone with the some, HoloLens? That'd be cool. Fly the drone with the HoloLens <laughs> on, make it look like something really cool that's not just one of those kind of ugly quadcopter things. Yeah, maybe you could hitch up some, like, weapons to the, uh, you know, to go all James Bond. There you the- go. Actually, that would be a great idea, right? Yeah. A, a nice little game where you go drone against drone and you got some AR weapons on there no i was talking about real weapons actually (laughs) oh yeah well that too but i'm trying to be safe for the kids (laughs) all right matthew what would you buy with five grand five grand uh well i'd probably buy a lot of uh little uh uh little boards education boards Uh, like i said i'm still you know heavily into you know uh, next generation of education Uh, especially if we can you know buy things like bbc micro bit those mm-hmm. really tiny little uh, controls, uh, these tiny little boards that uh, uh, is being part of the curriculum in the in the UK, where mm-hmm. uh, kids can make uh, uh, really uh, awesome uh, awesome uh, uh, solutions. Uh, you know, having things scroll as a marquee, you know, any number of things, and then sure. they also get to. Uh, to build things all with the power of uh, of alligator clips, no soldering required. Love it. Reminds me of Basic Stamp. Absolutely. My friend Richard got me into that years ago. Many years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very yeah so cool. kids don't have to worry about burning themselves. Although that was kind of a rite of passage as a kid. Uh, oh yeah. But uh, but yes, alligator clips. <laughs> So, is there anything else that we need to cover in terms of what's in uh, React Native that React developers wouldn't necessarily know about? Hmm. And if not, then I'd like to go back to the basics of React uh, for the benefit of those who, you know, find this new and uh, interesting and want to know all the, all the great things about it. Uh, have you had a show on React itself? Well, yeah, we have. We've uh, okay. done a had few. a couple of shows on it. And you okay. know, one of the things I've noticed, and maybe this is a corollary to this, is how many times we talk about React and Reactive at the right. same time. Because yeah. they're not yeah. the same. Yeah, they're different. Yeah, they're very different uh, in in terms of of uh, actual usage and so forth. The uh, you know, when you when you get down to it, React isn't really all that reactive because when you uh, you have to physically call set state to actually change the state, and then that causes the whole diffing and blah blah blah. So it's not really reactive, as it were. You know, it's not magic two way binding or anything like that. Well, you got Rx, uh, which is the reactive extensions, which allowed right. you to do um, essentially yeah, think uh, objects that you- change state when events happen, essentially. You can query with link and all of that stuff. And then React.js and then reactive extensions for all these different platforms. And then React is Facebook's, uh, what would you say, um, a toolkit, a platform? Uh, Yeah, a platform for building applications. For building applications. But not not, not just Facebook applications, for all applications. Correct. Yep. I keep finding the folks that like reactive acts in case in point, Matt, also seem to yeah. like react. Is it the name? 
<laughs> uh, no, I don't think it's the name necessarily, but I think it's the uh, it's some of the ideas behind it. I think that uh, that that people find attractive uh, the ideas of having uh, you know uni- unidirectional uh, data flow. The the ideas of functional programming becoming very clear, as it were, to uh, to people, uh, and and the benefits of immutability, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they're finding a lot of those patterns emerging uh, in the React community, whether it's in Redux and Flux architectures, whether it's um, with uh, um, uh, with uh, using the React extensions, uh, with uh, uh, obviously with uh, with React, uh, people are finding that the the architecture just naturally fits uh, fits that style of uh, of unidirectional data flow. Uh, you know, reactivity and, and so forth, reacting to events and, and, and so forth. I think it's quite a natural fit between the two. So there is a relationship there, but it's more a philosophical one. Yeah, I would say so. Sure. Absolutely. And that's, that's very interesting to me. And you, I mean, I'm, and I'm grabbing links as we're going along here because I think Redux is very interesting. Flux is another Facebook project. Yep. You know, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's more it's, of a, it's not only a library, but it's also kind of a, a way of thinking about, you know, tying your application together, managing state and so forth. Because there's a lot of flack around React in the early days because it was such a different way to think about organizing your web pages. Yes, it was. It was, it was actually very interesting because this goes back to, to JSConf, uh, can't remember the year, uh, quite honestly, it could have been 2013. Um, uh, where uh, where Facebook uh, uh, initially uh, announced uh, React, and it was a fairly negative uh, response to it in the yeah. fact that uh, there a lot of people were like, "What is this JSX thing?" Uh, you know, we were kind of looking at that and we we're like, "Well, didn't JavaScript try to do that with ES4 and you know ES4X and all of that?" And didn't we learn those lessons back then? Uh, and so maybe the pitch was wrong, maybe uh, maybe the audience wasn't right, uh, but it took them a while to kind of get over uh, get over that, and, and for people to to start appreciating uh, that there was really some really cool ideas built into here, uh, very much around uh, you know component driven developments and the ideas of lifetimes around your components, where you have mounting and unmounting behavior, you have whether you update it or not, you know, unidirectional data binding instead of two-way data binding. It was, you know, it was a lot to throw at someone at once. And uh, and to only focus on the, the, the JSX part, I, I think, was was off-putting to some people. Well, and, and part of that is also, why are we spreading JavaScript far and wide? You know, just because we can? Is this really the best language for all the things that we're doing? I think JavaScript has spread itself far and wide. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you've got JavaScript on devices. You've got uh, uh, JavaScript in space. You know, any any number of places, you know, JavaScript has pretty much fulfilled Atwood's rule of, you know, if you can put it in JavaScript, uh, JavaScript it will be done in JavaScript. Uh, I, I think that's pretty much a given at this point. So let's talk about some of the differences in styling and UI that you might run across doing a universal Windows app versus, you know, doing mobile apps with React. So, you know, as it stands, I think the React Native libraries that are out there today 
because they sort of were initially built for iOS and, and Android are almost exclusively focused on um, on mobile experiences. Um, so when you start to think about any of the sort of desktop features that you would expect, like, you know, sort of abnormal screen sizes compared to a mobile device and, um, you know, having sort of a multimodal input where you have the option, you have voice, you have uh, mouse, you have touch screens and you have, you know, sort of all these different things. You want to have, you know, hover text when you're on a desktop where you don't have really such a thing um, yep. when you're on uh, on a mobile device. Um, likewise, uh, you have uh, keyboard inputs and the ability to sort of tab through forms and, and all these other features. So you need a focus stack and, and all that other stuff. So that's something that actually doesn't exist in the core libraries for uh, for React Native today, but it's something that we're, you know, we're heavily interested in. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are starting to use React Native Windows for building desktop apps that are also interested in these features. And with like, as I said, other platforms popping up like React Native Mac OS and, and uh, React Native Ubuntu. Um, you know, I think this is going to be a trend in the next couple months, uh, seeing, seeing these features kind of evolve out, seeing this, uh, the frameworks for sort of differentiating your mobile and desktop experiences. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess to answer concisely, I think it's a huge gap right now in the framework. Um, and it's, but it's something that everybody's kind of focused on. Yeah. Yeah. But what's what's kind of interesting is the fact that, you know, with with React Native apps, you have kind of multiple ways about going about it. You have dot iOS, dot JS, you know, dot Android, dot JS, and then you'll have dot Windows, dot JS. And inside of that Windows, you you put all your Windows specific things in there, including any styling that you want to do for for that, say that. The UWP control that we're using behind the scenes, you want it to be this color or that color or, you know, this input interaction or that input interaction. And then basically uh, it serves as as that that kind of control. Yeah. Alternately, you can you can take a single uh, control uh, that works across iOS and Android and Windows and then do some specific uh, things in the style sheet itself. Uh, where you can give it a Windows portion and then decide uh, what to do in terms of heights, widths, uh, colors, etc. So you have multiple ways about uh, customizing your app per platform. Yeah, okay. Even within the realm of universal Windows apps, you have ways to um, handle different form factors and all of that stuff. And uh, I would expect that React Native doesn't get in the way of any of that stuff. No, it doesn't. Uh, n- no, and then the fact that you know you can you can scale it up to to meet your uh, your screen sizes, what uh, whatever ever that you need to uh, for your particular device. You know, you would hate to have something that looks good on on a, say an iPad and then put it on uh, to an iOS uh, to a, a phone and have it look. You know, terrible. So yeah. obviously, there are things that you can do to uh, to change sizes and and so forth. Yeah, very good. So, um, are is there anything missing from it? Is there anything that you wish uh, you could have gotten into this version or planned for next version? Yeah, I think uh, going back to what I had what I had said about 
the the desktop features. Those are something that we kind of wish that we prioritized earlier because we're starting to see more of an emphasis on people who people who are using React Native Windows to be more focused on building desktop apps rather than just porting their iOS and Android apps over to um, uh, over to Windows 10 Mobile, sure. for example. Um, so so if that you know that was would definitely be something we would have prioritized higher. Uh, likewise, I think another feature that uh, you were kind of alluding to a little bit is this, uh, these different device families within windows. Uh, I'd love yeah. to see the ability to have, um, as Matt was, was talking about, you can kind of declare, uh, you can use a uh, prefix on your, or I guess it's kind of a suffix on your JavaScript files to say which platform that file is relevant to. Mm. Uh, we kind of need a similar thing for, for sort of sub device families within windows, right? You might want to have a dot Xbox file and a, uh, you know, a, a dot mobile, a Win10 mobile or something file. Um, yeah. That so that behind the scenes, you know, they all kind of fall back to just whatever belongs in the Windows platform, and they all use the same UWP engine under the hood uh, because you have those. Uh, you know, it is UWP, and you can run those those binaries on any of those devices. Yeah. But yeah, there there needs to be sort of more support in terms of uh, the de- the device families within Windows. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like for example, to make it more voice driven, for example. All right, you know, those sure. Kinds of things. Yeah. Well, and and this is one of the things we were seeing in the 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 universal Windows platform approach was really it it wasn't even just the different screen form factors. It was all the different input options: pen, touch, voice, right. gesture. Like that's what's getting hard for developers now. Is it really going to support all this stuff? It's a huge array of of new input devices. Exactly. Well, guys, this sounds amazing, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. I, I don't think you're going to need it. I think people are really going to love this thing. So uh, congratulations again, and thanks for spending the hour with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at PWOP's comments and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a, a dog